Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. President Biden speaks with family members of the Buffalo shooting victims. He says the shooting was an act of domestic terrorism driven by racism. Republican politicians have called on the New York governor and legislature to bring back the death penalty. But a criminal expert questions their motives. The 2022 primaries are underway in five states. Former President Trump's influence in the GOP will be tested. What are some of the top races? The first open hearing on UFOs in more than 50 years. What did the top Pentagon officials say and not say to the American Republic? And how does it relate to our national security? And Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot is ending her policy of only giving interviews with reporters of color. She came up with the policy a year ago, but is backing down after a lawsuit over racial discrimination. Today, President Biden and the First Lady spoke to family members of Buffalo shooting victims after an 18-year-old man allegedly shot and killed 10 people at the top supermarket. The Bidens offered words of empathy to the families, drawing on their experience of losing their own son, Beau. Biden took a few minutes to talk about each of the victims individually. You know, we know it's hard to believe, and you're probably not going to believe it, but I can tell you now, from our personal experience and many others who we've met, the day's going to come, it will come, when your loved one brings a smile as you remember him or her, as you remember her, it's going to bring a smile to your lip before it brings a tear to your eye. Biden called the shooting an act of domestic terrorism fueled by an ideology rooted in fear and racism. He said lost and isolated individuals fear being replaced by the other. Biden also said people cannot remain silent when faced with violent acts as the nation's strength is in pr the protection of God-given rights. It's the idea of our nation that we're all children of God. All life, liberty, our universal goods, gifts of God. We didn't get it from a government. We got it from because we exist. And we're called upon to defend them. New York Governor Kathy Hochul, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Congressman Brian Higgins, locally elected officials, and faith leaders offered condolences to the victims' families. Meanwhile, investigators are examining the motive of the Buffalo attack and if any early warning signs were missed. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more. A mass shooting at the Tops Friendly Market in Buffalo took the lives of 10 people on Saturday. Now, investigators are trying to form a clear understanding into the motives of the massacre and if anything could have been done to prevent it. Among the victims killed were 62-year-old Geraldine Talley and 65-year-old grandmother Celestine Cheney. Authorities say the 18-year-old suspect, Peyton Gendron, was carrying out an act of racially motivated violent extremism. Eleven of the 13 victims were black. Last June, police detained the teenager after a school shooting threat was made. Gendron talked about murder and suicide when a teacher asked about his plans after school ended. He was given a mental health evaluation and released after one and a half days. It is not clear if New York's red flag law could have been used, a law that bars people from owning guns if a judge determines they have a mental defect or have been forced into a mental institution. An evaluation alone does not trigger the prohibition. Authorities did not say when Gendron acquired the weapons used during the attack. Evidence suggests Gendron was conducting reconnaissance and demographic research in the area prior to the attack. He had to travel about 200 miles from his home in Conklin, New York. Information has also come 
as a result of some of this investigation that the individual was here a few months ago back in early March. Buffalo police say authorities are examining a 180-page manifesto posted online that appears to have been written by Gendron. Federal authorities are working to confirm the authenticity of the document. Investigators are searching through physical evidence, phone records, computers, and online postings. Officials say other threats have popped up on social media. The federal investigation is continuing. We're working again jointly with our state and local law enforcement partners regarding the threats that have been going around on the internet. Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown says authorities are staying on guard for copycats. Buffalo police and our partnering law enforcement agencies standing here are investigating these social media posts and will prosecute if necessary. Authorities suspect Gendron was planning to continue his attack, possibly at another store nearby. Gendron has pleaded not guilty to a murder charge and is under suicide watch in jail. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Two Republican candidates for governor called for a return to the death penalty in New York following the mass shooting in Buffalo. NTD's Arlene Richards explores what would have to be done to reinstate the death penalty and whether the man charged with the shooting could end up on death row. For weeks, New York has been experiencing a spate of gun violence that has resulted in the deaths of innocent people, and members of the Republican Party are getting fed up. After the recent mass shooting in Buffalo, U.S. Representative Lee Zeldin, a New York gubernatorial candidate, tweeted that Governor Kathy Hochul should bring back the death penalty. Another GOP candidate for New York Governor Andrew Giuliani tweeted, the death penalty should be on the table. Former New York assistant DA Mark Ruskin said the tweets could be a way to garner political position. When there's a particularly heinous crime that occurs, a facile response is to call for more stringent penalties or for the death penalty. What has to be done in order to bring the death penalty back to New York? What the governor can do is propose legislation, which would then be voted upon by the legislature in New York State, and they would have the power to actually enact the legislation. Robert Blecker, a criminal law professor, said in an email, for New York to reenact a death penalty statute would require a seismic shift in the political landscape. He said under the federal death penalty statute, the racist multiple killer qualifies. But Ruskin says there's a long road between charging someone and sentencing him to death. If he's found due to mental defect incapable of having you know, formulated the intent necessary for criminal conviction, that could be a, a logical defense in, in a case like this and may result in a situation where he would not certainly not be executed. New York officials have charged shooter Peyton Gendron with first-degree murder, which could result in a life sentence. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Former President Donald Trump's influence in the Republican Party will be put to the test again today. Here's who to watch for as voters in five states cast their ballots in primary elections. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the story. In Pennsylvania, the race for Republican Senate nominee pits celebrity Dr. Mehmet Oz, who was endorsed by former President Donald Trump, against David McCormick, a former hedge fund CEO. Kathy Barnett is also high on the list of frontrunners, trailing just behind Oz and McCormick. The conservative commentator has come on strong lately with a pro-life message. On the Democratic side, 52-year-old frontrunner John Fetterman suffered a minor stroke last week. 
The lieutenant governor is still hospitalized but says he is on his way to a full recovery. In the gubernatorial race, Democratic Governor Tom Wolf is unable to run again due to term limit laws. In a packed Republican field, leading the polls is Trump-endorsed state senator Doug Mastriano. In North Carolina, Trump pick Ted Budd is in a strong position to win the GOP Senate nomination. His main rivals are former U.S. Representative Mark Walker and former Governor Pat McCrory. McCrory is known for signing the so-called bathroom bill in 2016, which mandated gender-specific bathroom use in North Carolina government buildings. Sherry Beasley, the former Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court, is the frontrunner in the Democratic Senate primary. If she wins in November, she will become North Carolina's first black U.S. Senator. In Kentucky, two lawmakers are vying to replace retiring Congressman John Yarmuth, the state's only Democrat in Congress. The race is between State Senator Morgan McGarvey and State Representative Attica Scott. Several Republicans are also running for the seat, despite their underdog status. In blue-leaning Oregon, the two leading Democrats in the gubernatorial primary are Tina Kotek, former Speaker of the State House, versus Tobias Reed, the state treasurer who has positioned himself as a moderate. While in Idaho, a heavy Republican state, the gubernatorial race will likely be settled by the GOP primary. Conservative Governor Brad Little is up against the Trump-backed candidate, Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan. In the race for Idaho Attorney General, five-term incumbent Lawrence Walden is facing a tough primary challenge from former U.S. Representative Raul Labrador. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Commissioners in Pennsylvania's Lancaster County voted to remove the county's lone ballot drop box the day before the primary election. But there is heated debate over the decision. Instead of placing absentee ballots in the drop box located just three steps inside the door of the county building, voters will have to walk about 30 steps into the building to get to the Board of Elections office. There, they will hand their ballot directly to one of the workers. Around the nation, the use of unmanned drop boxes has met with scrutiny amid evidence of suspected fraud. An investigation by Pennsylvania's Lehigh County found hundreds of people putting multiple ballots into unmanned drop boxes. An organizer with the advocacy group Lancaster Stands Up sent a group email to rally Democrats' support. He said that by removing the drop box, commissioners are making it confusing and difficult for voters to cast a ballot so close to an election. Top Pentagon officials testified today in a rare hearing on unidentified flying objects. What are they disclosing and why are they refusing to say more? Let's take a look. An observation in real time. There it was. Unveiling clips of unexplainable floating objects, top Pentagon officials testified in the first public hearing on UFOs in more than half a century. And is this one of the phenomena that we can't explain? I do not have an explanation for what this, this specific uh, uh, object is. Officials confirmed that most of the observed unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAPs, were physical objects, but they offered little confirmation on what those objects actually are, or whether aliens really exist. Yet Scott Bray, Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence, said sightings are frequent and continuing, and often occur in military training areas. When asked if U.S. aircraft have ever collided with these strange objects. We have not had a collision. We've had at least 11 near misses, though. The Tuesday hearing follows a government report in 2021 that recorded 144 cases of UAPs since 2004, with all but one of them unresolved. Bray said among these cases there are... There are a small handful in which there are flight characteristics or signature management um, that we can't explain with the data that we have. 
Um, we'll continue. Those are obviously the ones that are of most interest to us. Lawmakers focused more on national security, expressing concerns that some phenomena could be foreign adversaries like China and Russia deploying breakthrough technology in American airspace. UAPs are unexplained, it's true, but they are real. They need to be investigated, and many threats they pose need to be mitigated. Bray said China has established its own version of the UAP task force and that the U.S. is sharing findings with certain countries. This prompted a warning from lawmakers. Be careful who we share our data with and don't necessarily trust some of the data we may get from someone else. Pentagon officials also noted challenges in balancing between transparency and secrecy in this open hearing, which was followed by a closed-door session. We do not want potential adversaries to know exactly what we're able to see or understand or how we come to the conclusions we make. While sparing other details in the open session, Bray said the number of reported UFO encounters had grown to about 400 since last year's report, thanks to a reduced stigma around the topic. On Monday, the trial of Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman finally began. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton told Fox News someone may go to jail. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Uh, this is all going to be playing out for the American people, uh, and it's been playing out for years. The moment many have been waiting for has finally arrived. The jury has been selected for the trial of Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman. Sussman allegedly lied to FBI agents regarding receiving payments from the Clinton campaign. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton said special counsel John Durham will have a hard time convincing the Washington jury. To the degree Trump comes up more in this case, or even Hillary Clinton, the less likely Sussman uh, may see a guilty verdict. Fitton told Fox News a lot of evidence shows the Clinton campaign's direct involvement in what he called big lies. So it's really hard for Hillary Clinton to escape, escape uh, accountability, however limited, as you highlight, in this case for uh, the criminality targeting President Trump. He noted that the Clinton campaign and others all fought to keep records about Sussman's actions from getting into the court's hands, but said some information may come out anyway. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. The Senate voted to advance a $40 billion military aid package to Ukraine. This is despite objections from Senator Rand Paul and his request for oversight on how the money is spent. The vote included solid support from both parties. The bill now awaits a final vote in the Senate, which may come as early as May 18th. In comments on the Senate floor, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer decried Paul's effort last week to block the legislation. Paul said, we cannot save Ukraine by dooming the U.S. economy. He noted how much gas, energy and food prices have all risen. Paul was successful in temporarily halting the bill, but Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell promised Ukrainian leaders during a weekend visit to Kyiv that the bill would still pass. After a period of stalling, the $40 billion bill is expected to head to Biden's desk by the end of the week. The U.S. Air Force scores a win over the weekend with a successful test of its hypersonic missile. This comes one month after officials confirmed the program had numerous delays because of flight test anomalies. According to the Air Force, the air-launched rapid response weapon was released from a B-52H bomber Saturday and reached hypersonic speeds. The ARRW uses a booster rocket to hit speeds higher than five times the speed of sound. 
and a glide vehicle separates from the booster and rapidly heads toward its target. Pentagon officials placed high focus on hypersonic weapons after some lawmakers expressed concern that China's and Russia's programs were showing success in this area. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot is dropping a policy she rolled out a year ago where she would only give interviews with reporters of color. This comes after a lawsuit from the Daily Caller News Foundation. Here are the details. The Daily Caller News Foundation and reporter Thomas Catanacci announced Monday that Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot has agreed to drop her race-based interview policy. In May 2021, Lightfoot announced that she would be providing one-on-one interviews exclusively with reporters of color. This was to celebrate her two years in office. Here's how she defended her policy back then. When I look out at, um, across this podium as I'm doing now, I don't see much in the way of diversity. The fact that the City Hall press corps is overwhelmingly white, has very little in the way of diversity, is an embarrassment. We are a city that is almost three quarters people of color. I believe that the City Hall press corps needs to reflect the diversity of our city. Katanachi, who is white, says Lightfoot denied his interview request in May of last year. The reporter and the Daily Caller then filed a lawsuit in a U.S. district court, arguing that the mayor violated their First Amendment and Fourteenth Amendment rights. The Daily Caller agreed to dismiss the lawsuit after Lightfoot's office stated in a legal filing that it would not racially discriminate in the future. The chairman of the Daily Caller commented, a government official discriminating based on race is as wrong as it gets. We are relieved that she finally relented. Coming up, Elon Musk throws more cold water on the Twitter deal. He says unless he gets the actual number of fake accounts, the deal is off. And you might not have known that thousands of Americans who played a crucial role in World War II were never recognized as veterans. Now Congress is awarding medals to those men who risked their lives 77 years ago. NTD's Melina Weiskup will tell us their stories short break. The biggest subway system in the world is short of riders. Subway ridership in New York City is way down. So the mayor is encouraging everyone, including CEOs and executives, to take the train. NTD's Phil Zoe has more. New York City's mayor says, get on the train. New York is back. He wants everyone, including executives like the CEO of Chase Bank, to take the subway to work. So why not? Uh, there's a lot more violence now. I spoke to Kelly Herridge, a designer in New York. She used to take the subway occasionally. Now, she takes it even less. But our mayor doesn't do anything to make it better. Crimes are up over 30% compared to before the pandemic. Well, shootings are definitely up. I don't think just in New York City, but nationwide. Joseph Imperatrice is the founder of Blue Lives Matter, a nonprofit for police officers. We're seeing individuals become victims every single day. That shouldn't be the case. We need to go out there, remove the bad people from the equation, and make our city streets safer. There used to be over 5 million people taking the subway every weekday. But now, that number has fallen over 40%. I don't take the subway really. I mostly ride my bike, but uh, I use it in the winter if I'm, if I'm in the city. Pablo Karate is a photographer who moved to New York 20 years ago. 
he has a more positive vibe towards the city. It's, it's uh, kind of back to normal. I mean, I see a lot of people in the streets. I see a lot of people in New York City. You're going to kick people, homeless people out of the subway and, not put them on the, and put them on the streets and not provide anything to help. It's not helping in any way. It's making things worse. The current New York City mayor says he's speaking to a former New York City mayor, Michael Bloomberg, almost every week to get advice on how to eliminate crime in the city. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. Elon Musk is calling on the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission to investigate the number of fake and automated accounts on Twitter. He says the deal is on hold until the ratio of real accounts to fake accounts can be verified. Earlier this week, he asked how companies are supposed to know the value of advertising on Twitter if they can't tell exactly how many real people actively use the platform. Twitter is a publicly listed company, so it has to file certain numbers with the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC. As part of its filings, it estimated that less than 5% of all active accounts are fake. Musk has floated the idea that over 50% are fake, or even more. He says it's impossible to know for sure without verifying. Musk appears to believe that he can pull out of the $44 billion deal if it turns out the platform isn't as popular as Twitter says. But experts say it's not so easy. Apparently, Musk could have raised this concern before he made his bid, but he declined. Others say he wants an excuse to pull out of the deal. At a recent event, Musk said he's committed to the deal, but may try to get a cheaper price. At the beginning of the saga, Musk said it wasn't about the money. It was about safeguarding freedom of speech. Twitter has censored high-profile accounts, including former President Trump's. And as stocks fall, Warren Buffett is using the opportunity to go on a buying spree. Now we know what he's bought so far. NTD's Faye Quarter has more. Amid all the market chaos, Warren Buffett is going on a buying spree, throwing the most cash he's thrown into the stock market since 2008. $41 billion in net stock purchases in the first quarter. When the stock market is declining quite sharply in this calendar year, during the first quarter, it provided him with a lot of opportunities. David Cass is a Berkshire Hathaway investor. Cass believes Buffett is optimistic about the economy, despite the pessimism everywhere. Investors got to see what Buffett bought and what he sold in the Form 13F Berkshire Hathaway filed on Monday. Berkshire continued buying shares of Apple, which is by far its biggest holding. Berkshire brought its stake in video game developer Activision Blizzard to 8.2%, bought more of Ally Financial, and boosted investments in oil companies Occidental and Chevron. Both those stocks are up triple digits the last two years, so He's not buying low with those stocks. George C. is the chairman of Annandale Capital, as well as a Berkshire investor who's met Warren Buffett himself. C. says this is a momentum play, which Buffett almost never does. He thinks commodity price prices are, are going to stay high for a, a very long time and that these are not cyclical plays for him right now. They're, they're multi-year plays because he thinks that these Companies are going to buy back a lot of stock and pay a lot of money in dividends. Buffett also dumped Wells Fargo, which he'd owned since 1989, for Citigroup, a new purchase. Buying Citigroup is, is very surprising to me because that's been a poorly run bank for a very, very long time. And I think that is a pure Buffett value play. He's looking at it, trading at a discount to book value and saying, eventually I'll be right. Buffett also exited biotech firm AbbVie and pharmaceutical company Bristol Myers Squibb. He decreased holdings in Verizon, Royalty Pharma and Kroger. Notable increases include General Motors, Floor and Decor Holdings, Inc. and furniture company RH. Faye Quarter, NTD News.
You might not have heard of the term merchant mariner. These were men who met face to face with danger during World War II and were killed at a higher rate than any other military branch. But unfortunately, it took 77 years to garner congressional recognition for their crucial role in the war. NTD's Melina Weiskopf got the chance to speak with some of these brave men today. Here are their stories. This small group of men is only a fraction of the hundreds of thousands who served as merchant marines in World War II, a crucial role that was often misunderstood. We were the suppliers for the military. Without us, they would not have been able to completely win the war the way they did. We were the people who were the backbone of the military. Charles is 101 years old this year, the eldest among the group. Most of them are around 90 years old. The men here today tell me they're blessed to have made it to the final victory and to lay eyes on this World War II memorial. And so what you really see is the divisions of all the places we served on five continents. That we finally did it. But they cherish and remember those, the more than 9,500 who didn't make it. And these men served in the most dangerous branch with the highest casualty rate of any branch during that war. One veteran tells me that one out of every 26 men died in the line of duty, with at least one ship sinking every day. Well, the most scariest thing was I was in a convoy, several ships ahead of us got torpedoed, and uh, guys were in the water and you couldn't help them. Yeah, you never knew when we submarine was going to put a torpedo in you but fortunately I didn't I didn't suffer that while these men faced uncertainty of life during every day of their service they were unfortunately not met with the same recognition when they made it home and that kind of hurt we come home and everybody else is having a parade participating in a parade and we're on the sidelines we weren't even invited to be in the welcoming home parades but we live with it. It took 43 years for the servicemen to get the recognition from the government as veterans. Many of them were as young as 16 years old when they joined. And what happened, the ships were knocked off so rapidly that they had to keep recruiting. And by the end of 1943, nothing left to recruit, so they reduced the age to 16. And how do they feel about the war in Ukraine going on now? We're going backwards and living in this world. I think people need to learn how to get along. Tomorrow, Congress will officially honor and recognize these men, along with the 1,500 who are still living. The role of a merchant mariner will at last be recognized for the hardship and sacrifice that these men lived through 77 years ago. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Coming up, a new drug smuggling passage was discovered during a federal drug investigation. Authorities say it stretches from Mexico to San Diego. And in the NBA, a rivalry renews tonight. NTD's Dave Martin recounts the long history of what's made the Celtics' heat battles so remarkable. That and more coming up. U.S. authorities on Monday announced the discovery of an underground smuggling tunnel through Mexico's border into San Diego. 
Authorities seized nearly one ton of drugs related to the tunnel, while the owner of the house on the Mexican side said he had no idea it existed. NTD's David Lamb has the story. You stay on the rails, it's okay. Investigators discovered the tunnel last week about half a mile from the Otay Mesa border, crossing between San Diego and Tijuana. More than a dozen other tunnels have been discovered in the past two decades in the same area. The passage was discovered on Friday and ran one-third of a mile to Tijuana. It was four feet in diameter and about six stories deep. After staking out at a home that had recently been used as a drug stash house, agents began making traffic stops of vehicles that had been there or at a warehouse near the border, turning up boxes full of cocaine. They raided the properties, finding no other drugs at the San Diego warehouse, but a tunnel opening carved into the cement floor. At the other end of the tunnel in Tijuana, the owner of the property told Reuters he didn't know it existed. I came back from a stroll and now they aren't letting me into my house. What happened? I wasn't aware of what was going on in my house. It was all very hidden. There are two houses. Jimenez said he hadn't heard any noises from the tunnels. Nothing, nothing, nothing. That's why I find it very strange that in 12 years I've never seen any suspicious movement, nothing. Like many such tunnels, it had reinforced walls, electricity, ventilation, and a rail system. Agents seized more than 1,700 pounds of cocaine, 165 pounds of meth, and three and a half pounds of heroin from the vehicles and the residents. And they arrested six people on federal drug conspiracy charges. All are Southern California residents. Authorities did not link the latest tunnel to any specific cartels or say how long the passage had been operating. But the Department of Homeland Security is investigating the tunnel. David Lamb, Entity News, California. A California district attorney rebuked a judge's order of giving a minimum sentence to a criminal who killed a cop. The DA said that the laws in the state have eroded accountability for violent crimes. We hear more from NTD's David Lamb. Last week, a Sacramento Superior Court judge sentenced 22-year-old Juan Carlos Vasquez Orozco to 15 years in prison for shooting and killing an El Dorado County Sheriff's deputy. Orozco received the minimum sentence after Judge Sharon Lueras struck all of the charges involving gun usage. In response, the El Dorado County District Attorney Vern Pearson wrote that this is the fault of state laws that allow judges' discretion to strike enhancements from sentencing decisions. Pearson pointed out that law, Senate Bill 620, in a three-page statement. He wrote, it was a rare use of discretion, especially considering the fact that one peace officer was murdered and another was wounded, both by gunfire. While prosecuting the case, Pearson sought the maximum sentence of 40 years to life. His comments on the ruling follow Orozco shooting and killing Sheriff's Deputy Brian Ishmael in October 2019. Deputies responded to a marijuana grow operation where Orozco was both living and working. Orozco ambushed and killed Ishmael before being arrested. Pearson wrote he was very disappointed by the judge's decision. The sale of a Los Angeles baseball stadium, which was meant to be sold to create affordable housing, is now delayed. The reason? The FBI started a corruption probe into the mayor of the city where the stadium sits. NTD's Eileen Ang has the details. 
California Attorney General Rob Bonta announced that the Angel Stadium sale in Anaheim will be delayed for 60 days. The announcement comes as the FBI is investigating Anaheim Mayor Harry Sidhu for public corruption allegations. According to FBI agent Brian Adkins in an affidavit, the FBI learned that the city of Anaheim was tightly controlled by a small cadre of individuals, to include Sidhu, a particular member of the Anaheim Chamber of Commerce, and others. The investigation dates back to 2018. Through the cooperation of a witness and a chamber employee, the FBI learned that Sidhu was involved with fraud and other crimes. Sidhu shared privileged and confidential information with the Angels during stadium sale negotiations, actively concealed the same from grand jury inquiry, and expects to receive campaign contributions as a result. He also attempted to obstruct an Orange County grand jury inquiry into the Angel Stadium deal. Adkins believes Sidhu's motives for his actions are to maintain his reputation in Anaheim and ensure his re-election in November 2022. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. The Eastern Conference Finals start tonight with Miami hosting Boston in what has become a long-running NBA rivalry. It all goes back to current Heat president Pat Riley's time coaching the Lakers in the 1980s. That's when he coached against former Celtics player and president Danny Ainge in three heated NBA Finals clashes. Ainge, later on as Celtics president, would go on to create the first recognized three-superstar team in 2007 when he traded for Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen to team up with Paul Pierce. The trio won the title in 2008 and made the NBA Finals again two years later. Miami, with Riley as president, then copied the formula in 2010, attracting LeBron James and Chris Bosh in free agency to team with Dwayne Wade. The result was a juggernaut that in 2011 advanced past Boston for the first time in James or Wade's career. Miami won the rematch again the following season and route to back-to-back -back NBA titles. The second of those was one with Ray Allen, who signed with Miami in free agency in a stunning move that caused a long-running feud between him and his former teammates. A year later, in a nondescript regular season matchup, the rivalry boiled over into the press as Riley publicly told Ainge to shut up regarding James' complaints about officiating and claimed Ainge was the biggest whiner as a player. After the season, Ainge traded away an aging Garnett and Pierce for draft picks that ultimately led them to selecting current Celtics stars Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Two years ago, the two rebuilt teams met in the conference finals with Miami winning in six. Tonight, the rivalry renews. In the NHL, round two begins tonight with a pair of game ones. First, the Sunshine State rivalry renews as Florida hosts two-time defending champion Tampa Bay in a rematch of last year's first-round series. The Lightning had to come back from a 3-2 deficit against Toronto in the opening round this year to keep their dreams of a three-peat alive. Florida, on the other hand, beat Washington in six for their first playoff series win since 1996. In the nightcap, the Avalanche hosts the Blues. Colorado, which won the Central Division, has lost in this round each of the past three seasons and hasn't advanced the Conference Finals since 2002. St. Louis placed third in the Central but finished the season on a hot streak with 14 wins in their last 20 games. The Blues are in the second round for the first time since winning the Stanley Cup in 2019. 
The Preakness, the second leg of horse racing's Triple Crown, is set to run this weekend with Epicenter as the betting favorite to win at 6-5 odds. Epicenter finished second in the Kentucky Derby to Rich Strike, but the Derby winner won't be racing this weekend as the owner wants to rest the colt in preparation for next month's Belmont Stakes. This marks the second time in four years the Derby winner won't be in the Preakness, as 2019 Derby winner Maximum Security was eventually disqualified for interference. That's all for sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. Coming up, the brother of the slain Al Jazeera journalist speaks about the chaos seen on video at the funeral for his sister. He accuses Israeli police of a brutal attack. And Russian President Vladimir Putin appears to have changed his position over Russia's objections to Sweden and Finland potentially joining NATO. He now says Moscow has no issues with them entering the U.S.-led military alliance. Find out more after this short break. The brother of the slain Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh spoke about the chaos seen on video at his sister's funeral. He accuses Israeli police of a brutal attack. The police, uh, we saw on the videos how they acted brutally against pole bearers carrying the, the casket with the batons, uh, beating them, uh, smashing the, the hearse. This was unacceptable, unjustifiable. The Israeli Minister of Public Security told CNN that police acted to allow the funeral procession to go smoothly, along with an understanding of how sensitive and complex the event was. He said that participants at the funeral caused severe violent events to break out that made the situation worse. In footage, police are seen clashing with a group carrying the casket, but police say the casket was not supposed to be transported by hand. They say it was supposed to be loaded into a hearse. According to a Times of Israel report, police say the casket was marched by hand at the hospital against the family's wishes. Palestinian and Israeli authorities are separately investigating the journalist's death. Ukraine's military ceded control of the strategic port city of Mariupol to Russia today. It announced it was working to evacuate all remaining troops from their last stronghold in the Azovstal steel plant. In his address, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky stressed the importance of saving lives. We hope we'll be able to save the lives of our guys. There are severely wounded ones among them. They're being given care. I want to stress that Ukraine needs Ukrainian heroes alive. That's our principle. Reuters saw at least five buses arrive in the Russian-controlled city of Novoazovsk to the east of Mariupol late on Monday. The buses were seen marked with the Russian pro-war symbol Z. They arrived with heavily wounded Ukrainian troops from Azovstal. Ukraine's military said in a statement it had ordered its commanders at the steelworks to save the lives of the defenders, saying, quote, the Mariupol garrison has fulfilled its combat mission. Fifty-three heavily wounded defenders were sent to Novoazovsk, while some 200 others were taken to another town north of Mariupol, said Ukraine's deputy defense minister, Anna Malya. She confirmed the evacuations were part of a potential prisoner exchange with Moscow. The evacuations likely mark the end of the longest and bloodiest battle of Russia's war in Ukraine and a significant defeat for Ukraine. 
Mariupol is now in ruins after a Russian siege that Ukraine says killed tens of thousands of people in the city. Since Russia launched what it calls a special military operation in February, the port city's devastation has become a symbol both of Ukraine's resistance and of Russia's willingness to devastate Ukrainian cities that hold out. President Vladimir Putin appears to have changed his position over Russia's objections to Sweden and Finland joining NATO. He said Moscow has no issues with them entering the U.S.-led military alliance. I want to inform you, dear colleagues, that Russia has no problem with those states. It hasn't. So in this regard, expansion by the addition of those countries poses no direct threat for us. But the expansion of military infrastructure into this territory would certainly provoke our response. What that will be, we will see what threats are created for us. The comments appeared to mark a major shift in rhetoric. Moscow for decades has cast NATO expansion as a direct threat to Russia's security, including citing it as a justification for the invasion of Ukraine itself. Russia's invasion has shaken up Europe's security architecture and forced Sweden and Finland to choose sides after staying out of NATO during the Cold War. Finland and Sweden now say they want the protection offered by NATO's treaty, under which an attack on any member is considered an attack on all. Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson made the announcement Monday. Our 200-year-long standing policy of military non-alignment has served Sweden well. But the issue at hand is whether military non-alignment will keep serving as well. And Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine is not only illegal and indefensible, it also undermines the European security order that Sweden builds its security on. Swedish and Finnish officials have said Putin has only himself to blame for their decisions to join NATO. But the plans might be hitting a snag. NATO member Turkey said it would not approve either bid, with Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan saying Monday that Sweden and Finland should not bother sending delegations to Ankara to persuade Turkey. Sweden and Finland need each of NATO's 30 members to approve their applications. The UK's Postal Service wants to start delivering mail by drone to isolated communities. The Royal Mail plans to create 50 new routes that would take letters and parcels to remote islands, bringing a new meaning to the term airmail. Here's more on this story. The UK's postal delivery service, the Royal Mail, plans to introduce 50 postal drone routes to some of the nation's most remote communities. The planes are able to fly autonomously. They don't need to carry a pilot on board. Uh, one of the benefits of that is they burn less fuel than a conventional aircraft. They connect up with our postmen and postwomen um, who will be able to uh, deliver the items. The company expects to use up to 200 uncrewed aerial vehicles over the next three years. The first routes will be to places like the Hebrides, Shetland Islands and Orkney Islands in Scotland, as well as the Isles of Scilly off the south coast of England. Locals welcome the development. It could take up to a week or more even sometimes to get deliveries. Um, the drone has the potential to speed things up tremendously, and that can only be better for the Isles of Scilly. The project is a partnership with the logistics drone company Windracers. Royal Mail has already carried out over four trials over the last 18 months. The UAVs can carry up to 220 pounds of mail for two daily return flights between islands. The project now needs to be approved by the UK's Civil Aviation Authority before it can get off the ground.
Coming up, the Cannes Film Festival returns for its 75th anniversary after the event was cancelled in 2020 and scaled back in 2021 due to the pandemic. And we'll take a closer look at the works of Italian artist Piranesi, who's famous for his etchings of Rome. Two national libraries in France are showcasing his masterpieces. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Cannes Film Festival is set to return in a big way for its 75th anniversary. The world-renowned event was cancelled in 2020 and scaled back in 2021 due to the pandemic. The Cannes Film Festival is rolling out the red carpet Tuesday, and this year's roster of films is sure to impress. I honestly think this is one of the best Cannes lineups in years. I mean, you've got uh, a couple of really big Hollywood movies, uh, uh, Top Gun Maverick, which has been waiting two years to hit theaters because it was delayed because of COVID, held back. It's finally going to come out and be shown here on the red carpet. You've got Elvis, a Baz Luhrmann film about the king of rock and roll, so promises to be a huge sort of spectacular. And it's expected to be a star-studded event. This year, it seems to be that everyone who has a film here, all the stars, have confirmed their flights. Nobody wants to stay away. Everyone wants to sort of come back for this uh, this moment, sort of this, I don't know, reawakening of cinema uh, here, here in Cannes. So I think it's going to be an amazing red carpet. If this year's Cannes is a huge success, it could bode well for the future of the movie industry. After the pandemic kept audiences from enjoying films at theaters. When I've been talking to independent producers, independent uh, financers, um, uh, cinema owners um, in different countries, um, they say they're really excited. They think people will come back to theaters. They think um, the sort of um, streaming boom doesn't mean that uh, cinema is dead. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of business uh, being done here. And hopefully in the coming months, um, a lot of sort of box office successes uh, that started here in Cannes. This year's festival will take place amid the war in Ukraine. The event's organizers have banned Russians with ties to the government from attending. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. In France, two national libraries showcase the work of Italian artist Piranesi. An architect, but foremost an artist, who some say dreamed and drew the perfect architecture following the most refined antique art standards. It's a source of inspiration that still stands almost 250 years after his time. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has the story. What if this fountain, these statues, this obelisk, or this monument were not created by their builders, but rather remembered by them? What if these craftsmen did not create, but only brought back scenes from memory of past times and past worlds? This theory might hold for Italian artist Giovanni Battista Piranesi, who once said that creating is remembering. The artist is being celebrated at two libraries that stand side by side. The Institute of France and the Mazarin Library, with an exhibition of his gravures. At the end of the 18th century, the two library directors bought almost all of the drawings of the famous Italian artist for a purpose. We had the chance to own almost all 1,200 engraved plates from Piranesi. At the time, the library directors purchased it to educate the taste and the art of young French people. The exhibition entitled A Dream in Stone and Ink showcases the fascinating imagination of Piranesi. He was one of the creators of the neoclassicism movement 
and though he did not build many buildings, he was known for his gravure printing, showing a preference for immense buildings and refined decor, including sculptures. If we get back to the 18th century, it is obvious that the legacy of antiquity is something unmatched. This is the canon of beauty. After much research, we see that throughout his career, Piranesi accumulated a knowledge that is the heritage of ancient civilization, and he created a repertory from it. The Italian Renaissance saw artists going back to painting or sculpting divine and mythological figures. But artists in other time periods follow the same path. Piranesi started his research on a treatise on architecture by Marco Vitruvio Polion, a Roman architect who is said to be the reference point for all architects of the classical movement. Vitruvio wrote that the building needs to showcase three virtues strength, utility, and beauty, and use a divine proportion. Ancient Rome architecture is like a canon. This is altogether reference to Vitruvio's treatise. This is like the grammar of architecture, something that has to be applied to find the correct proportion, something you teach as the recipe of good taste that young architects had to learn. Ancient buildings also bear a mysterious aura, as in the Seven Wonders of the World. Librarian Olivier Thomas says a Pyrenees' work brings back a nobility to architecture. Here you have a section of the third volume of the Roman Antiquities published in 1760. It is an imaginary view of the Appian Way in a perspective that Piranesi particularly likes, adding many elements of antiquity, inventions such as obelisks. We see the taste for grandeur, for immensity. Archaeologist and artist Piranesi has inspired many architects across Europe, and we can see traces of his art everywhere. For example, English architect Sir John Soane, who designed the Old Bank of England, studied Piranesi's work. Thomas said he not only inspired architects in the UK, but also others. We see Piranesi's influence over British architects such as Robert Adam, but also in British literature in 1760 through the Gothic-style novel, a genre that is created by Horace Walpole with The Castle of Otranto. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.